Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Engineering and Construction Brands podcast with your host, Matthew Winkelstein, and I am joined today by Dane Groneveld. Thanks for joining me today. Dane is the CEO founding partner of Huddle3, whose core purpose is to advance people through business and business through people. He's also the host of the Future of Teamwork podcast, which explores our mission to advance business through people and people through business. I wanted to interview you for this episode because I feel like there's so many parallels in some of the content I've seen that you produce and some of the struggles that ENC firms have with attracting talent, maintaining talent. And if you don't provide talent with opportunities and training, they're probably going to leave and go find something else because they're not sure what's there ahead of them. So I thought yeah. this would be a good interview. Before we get into some of that detail, if you would let our audience know a little bit more about yourself, brief career history, and then we'll get into the episode. Yeah, you bet, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's exciting to be talking about the engineering construction realm because that's where I've spent a lot of my career. So I grew up, my father was a mining engineer, building, operating different mining facilities around the world. I myself fell into recruiting in a bar when I was 19 in London. And so I've spent most of my career recruiting technical talent for major facilities projects and operations and maintenance cycles. So that's been really fun. And I've worked all over the world big brands, small brands, and really over the last, I would say three, four years, thanks in part to the pandemic, we started to move beyond recruiting and staffing into executive search, into software related to attracting and retaining talent. And we started the podcast because we're fascinated by what it takes to build and operate all of this infrastructure that we rely on for our quality of life. And yet, the teams that are out there doing that work aren't always getting the best resources, the best experience, the best opportunities like you touched on because they're working in hazardous frontline environments and it's not quite the same as being a knowledge worker in the Silicon Valley. So it's fascinating to look at what teams have achieved over history and what's going to be different for teams in the future and how that relates to today, what we need to do now to attract and retain great talent. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love your story because it's similar to mine, but different where you grew up in the industry and then chose somewhere in the industry that you felt like you could add value and you were interested in. And then I had a similar experience where I see a lot of people and where I think some of these efforts fall short is they have a discipline and then they end up in the industry and they're only mildly uh -huh. interested in the industry. And when you're yeah. talking about something as important as attracting and recruiting talent, that shows through pretty quickly. And if your vernacular is just a little bit off, you're going to lose whoever you're talking to. Do you think that's provided an advantage for you? And do you think that is an area that some companies are lacking in that area? It's interesting. I think growing up, moving from mining town to mining town, and then into some of the bigger cities as dad's career progressed, I think the single biggest power I developed was just this ability to get in and work out what people were doing in new environments and help them play nicely or find out how they how, how they collaborate. So I actually started recruiting in the finance industry and then evolved into infrastructure, mining, power, and oil and gas because I think of the family background. But I also think those environments, you're talking about large projects, small and large projects, but large projects is where I've played. And so you're constantly seeing people turn up be thrown into a new team, a new environment, a new supply chain. And I think just playing in that sort of environment was a lot of what I'd come from, a lot of what I enjoyed. It creates a lot of variety. I get bored easily. So I played more off what I enjoyed doing as a young person than necessarily 
you know, some of the machines I got to go in when I was on site with that. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as I mentioned at the kickoff of the show, you're founding partner and CEO of Huddle3. So sounds like you had a successful corporate career at multiple stops, different industries. What prompted you to found Huddle3 and tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, I was really fortunate from about 2009 when all of the Australian coal seam gas projects were taking off and we were starting to build more LNG, as well as the conventional fueled LNG projects in Papua New Guinea and Western Australia. I was fortunate to get into this major projects environment, supporting big brands like ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and the whole supply chain that comes below that, all the engineering firms, consulting firms, general contractors, specialist constructors. So that happened in 2009, which was like right when I was getting married, I was still pretty mobile and I got to travel and see teams deploying all over the world. People were going into fab shops in Indonesia. They were going in to look at rotating equipment packages in Florence and Italy, which sounded like a good deal for anyone that got that job. We were going on site and doing civil infrastructure ahead of facilities going in, pipelines going in, in, in remote location. I got that experience and when we were about to have our first child, I was working for a large global business then. We moved to Houston because that's number one, the center of the oil and gas industry for the clients that I was serving, but also uh, my wife's from Texas, so it was a way to get back. And, uh, and really my success once I got to Houston ramped up because now I'm right in the middle of where a lot of this stuff happens and I got to learn from some great people. So having come through all of that, most of my focus was on major upstream projects and LNG facilities and the oil price tanks in 2015. And I had this great opportunity to join the Stein family here that owned PTS, a staffing business in California that served predominantly refineries. And so moving from upstream projects that had gone really quiet into refineries, which always need work, there's always <laughs> very busy communities of service providers keeping refineries alive. That, that was a good ship for me. And as I started to operate more entrepreneurially, that was my first CEO job with the Steins. We realized that we could start leveraging our success in staffing to buy other businesses, some of which were staffing firms. We bought down in Louisiana, we bought up in the Bay Area and then move into software. So really Huddle 3 Group emerged as this parent company to an existing business and some other businesses that we bought and started up along the way. Yeah, I'm, I was laughing when you were talking about turnarounds and refineries because I can remember being, my, my experience at that time was in nuclear and it was in coal, it was a coal fire retrofit. Okay, do you want to go to this refinery project in California? I was like, yeah, sure. And it's in LA. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember the Tesoro LA refinery. I was like, yeah. Holy crap, this is bigger than like where I'm from. The refinery, yeah. not this, not LA, Huge. like the refinery is bigger than where I'm from. <laughs> Just remember being so intimidated by that. And also being impressed with the logistics of what it takes to get people around and move people around from people that are on the tools, from the people that are pushing the schedules and everywhere in between. So yeah. it, it's uh, the fact that you could step into that environment and immediately acclimate and add value, I think also says a lot about you and your company. And the stuff that we deal with isn't quite as, that's the most urgent environment I've ever been in. Nuclear it's, turnarounds yeah. are, there's an urgency to them, but there's a calm urgency. It's, we need to get this done in the next 10, things are days and shifts and hours. Refineries, we need to get this done in 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we need yeah. someone here tomorrow. We need someone here yesterday. And it's just such a frenetic pace. It's the most frenetic pace I've ever experienced. Fun, yeah, but it really, frenetic. It really is. And I was lucky to join 
a great team here with the Stein family. Ron Stein, the founder of PTS, had actually come out of the Unical refinery just down the road from where you were at Tesoro, which is now Marathon. And Unical is now Philip 66. So a few <laughs> brand changes, but still the same facilities. And so he'd been in the mix and he started this business having come out of industry. So we've always been surrounded by just brilliant people and had deep relationships with our customers and uh, our industry peers too. You don't just serve oil and gas anymore though. Is that correct? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you're serving people outside oil and gas and some success you've had there. And then we'll get into some, I'm interested just to hear about where you think yeah. the industry's making mistakes, attracting talent and also where companies are falling short too. Yeah. Our core business is process heavy industries. So advanced manufacturing, whether it's the oil and gas industry, chemicals market's been big, particularly in the Gulf Coast, that's been growing. We're doing a lot more in power and renewables, a little less on nuclear, but certainly pretty heavy in the fossil fuels and starting to see more wind and solar. The life sciences markets are growing area. We've been obviously moving into a lot more medical device manufacturing here in the US, but always had a decent amount of pharmaceutical manufacturing too. And then we're seeing on the fringes, some great customers that are doing work in electric vehicles, electric charging stations some of the renewable fuels projects that are coming up. So that really tends to be our main area of focus in the staffing business and in the executive search group. Our, our software is much broader. So our software is industry agnostic. So it helps companies to start reaching out to candidates and bringing candidates through recruiting and onboarding processes in all industries, whether it's healthcare, education, oil and gas, IT, that's a more broad product. But the reason we got into that, it, to, to your point there, Matthew, is we see there being a problem with, particularly in the technical industries, how do you attract, engage, stay in touch with the talent when they're either entering the industry or when you're trying to keep them in the industry or deploy them between projects? There's always been a fairly haphazard approach to workforce planning, in my opinion, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but I think technology in the future is going to play more of a role and particularly on an ecosystem level, lots of companies do workforce planning well internally, but the talent community is fluid right now and projects aren't always within a short drive of where you are. I think we need to all take more of an ecosystem approach to the talent supply chain. I couldn't agree more. So I just want to put a, put a little bow on this and I want to talk about software here for a second. Yeah. So is it safe to say that if you're in any industry that needs technical talent, you're interested in having a conversation and you can help them at the staffing level where people that are, you know, on the tools to supervisor. And then you also do executive search. If you're a company that's looking for your next VP, senior vice president, you don't have internal candidates, you're a good place to be able to reach out. And you have that pool of people and you're networked well across industries. So you can help make those connections. Is that accurate? Yeah, that would be accurate. I would say on the staffing side, we've got a great joint venture and some other wider partners when it comes to skilled trades and people on the tools. But where we really play is supervisory up into the white collar engineers, designers, safety managers, quality project professionals, manager, QA, project QC. managers. Yeah, got yeah. it, got it. That tends to be where it's at because a lot of the engineering firms, construction firms, and then the owners teams are all, always looking for that talent to ramp up for projects. Absolutely. So having trouble with project leadership, this is the right place to reach out to. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit more about the software because you brought it up and I assume that you created that software to be able to help your existing clients. And now it sounds like you also offer that outside of your client base. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how it helps clients and how they can, how they can become familiar with the product? Yeah, actually Smart Search was founded. It's probably one of the longest standing applicant tracking systems, albeit it's more than an applicant tracking system now. So that was created back in the mid to late 80s and they were our software partner. So we actually acquired them in 2020. And at the time, the founders were working with us on building a new dynamic talent pool so we could deploy talent between turnaround projects. We wanted to create something that was more continuous. And when we started talking about the partnership, the conversation came up, why don't you just buy us? So they already had all of these other customers in other segments. <laughs> and what was brilliant about them and the reason that we bought their software and have continued to invest in the team is that it's, yeah, it does the applicant tracking. It allows you to put a job in the system, post the job, have candidates apply organically, as well as have recruiters work your database. But then it's got a lot of workflow configuration to help you make sure that candidates are being kept in touch with or through the interview process, appropriately onboarded, particularly in technical industries where you've got lots of safety training, certification, badging, PE. So it, it's a very robust product and we were just excited by, you know, where you could take that product and then go further once you've got a tech team in-house that, that knows about the capabilities you're trying to build for. So we're only a few years into that journey, but we've got a pretty exciting outlook for how we continue to build capabilities for our customers, particularly in technical markets, but broader than that too. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and I think the challenge that a lot of companies have, and you see it where they go to C-level talent time and time again, because it's the only thing that they know, and they aren't, they don't have the bandwidth to go outside. So you're constantly in this kind of recycling pool of people where you only get a couple more. It sounds like yeah. you're keeping track of all these qualifications. And I assume things like whether they have Twit cards, all that kind of yep. stuff. So then you can get them right in and then you can deploy from your network of people. Hey, Here's someone that we think meets your talent and you already have all that stuff networked from all your experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a lot of that stuff, as we all know, anyone who's working in the engineering construction environment knows that it's, it's hard to chase that down. You're often herding cats, right? Because it's on different systems. You've got people that are coming up projects in different jurisdictions where they can't just go home and grab something and send it to you because they're in the field. It's a huge workload. Yeah, I, I, I know that problem very intimately because for when I was out West and in charge of safety for a construction company, and then when I was running projects, the amount of people that I could get from within the company that could actually get on the project within two weeks was a small number of people because no one went through the training. No one had a Twit card, which getting too technical, but got background checks you need to have to be able to get into the facility. You had to have their, you had to have the refinery, whatever it was, LARSO or the yeah, Bay Area yeah. training and just a logistical nightmare. And so you were, you were limited to this very small pool of people. And especially like you said, companies are fairly good at doing that internally, but it quickly breaks down when you're talking about other candidates should be in the orbit. And in the situation like you're talking about, even within the company, it can become a smaller number of people just because of how the requirements start to stack up and what you need to be able to step foot on site. Yeah. And we've seen it like back in the day in Australia, we went through a huge civil construction boom. We were building roads, bridges, airports, water treatment facilities, you name it. And we saw based on the project, there'd be different requirements. And invariably, one of my buddies who, you know, was driving an hour and a half to a project every morning and every afternoon, which is 
bit of a grind. He'd come off that project and they'd already manned up the project that was 20 minutes down the road. So now they asked him to fly down to the next state and jump on another project. And so they lost that talent because if you can't plan ahead, you've got these short windows to keep your people on the projects that both they're technically competent to perform in, they fit with the team, and it actually is convenient for their family and lifestyle. I, I had an old school boss that he, he'd call them job hoppers. He always wanted me to try and yeah. find people that he goes, no, we need the ones that are dedicated. I'm like, there's a reason they're dedicated. They don't have any other options. Yeah. They're dedicated because there's not two other companies that would hire them to do what we're paying them to do. That's yeah. Exactly of course it. they're dedicated. Like, the person that's telling you, Hey, if I don't have something that's within this area, I got something else. That's the, those are the actual people we want. <laughs> yeah. It's totally right. People we'll turn that stuff upside down all the time. We'll have customers come to us and say in our staffing business, oh, we're not happy with the quality of candidates that you're providing us, that we're only getting two or three per job and other vendors give us 10. And we're like, well, hold on. Of the 10 you're getting from the other vendors, how many you're interviewing? They're like one. And I'm like, of the two or three you got from us, how many you're interviewing? Two or three. Let's go downstream here a little bit. Uh, people run metrics all the time in attracting and retaining talent. Yeah, I deal with that in marketing. People worry about the metrics on the platform, which they do mean something, but the only baseline they have is like influencers, right? So they're looking yeah. for these gaudy numbers. It's no, wait a second. The, people are talking to you at the conference. People are bringing your name up for this subject. People are, that is, if a hundred people see that, but it's a hundred people, who cares if a million kids in India see this post? Yeah. <laughs> but if that's what you're looking at and that's what you're conditioned to know, that's what you know. So I can imagine that same thing persists in recruiting. You're absolutely right. And I like what you just touched on. That was one reason I was excited to have this conversation, Matthew. From what I understand, what you're doing is really helping build the profile of leaders mm -hmm. so that it's, it's the leader's profile and persona that attracts the talent. And that's a huge shift in the industry. I think it's a necessary shift. There's a lot of talk out there right now that people don't leave companies, they leave bosses, right? But equally, if I go back particularly to that boom time in Australia where we just couldn't find talent at all. You'd see three jobs advertised and one would have two people with high-vis jackets and hard hats and one would have three people and one would have four people. And that was about the diversity of their advertising campaigns for the job. So I think you need to make it more about the people on these projects and on these teams if you really want to attract top talent. Absolutely. And when you have enough experience and you've done it enough, you realize that companies are the logos a lot more than they are the stuff that happens at an individual contributor level. That's yeah. much more impacted by your leader. Now, when you get into like promotions, all that kind of stuff, there's things that they can, hands can be tied. When you're talking about your everyday experience, it's the leader that you report to. And I would rather work for a great leader in a company with less upside than work in a terrible leader in a company that had all this perceived upside. Cause I know I wouldn't be able to get where I need to get to anyways. So yeah. that was like some of the thought with, Hey, if you're an executive and you want to attract talent, you're the best one to attract talent. If you're to a certain degree, right? When you get to a certain level, it's not, it doesn't work that well. But where we've seen success is it's a lot more the passive people where it's the person that isn't necessarily looking. They see a post but and they're like, I resonate with that. I'm interested in coming to work for you. Yeah. And then you know, finding something. I don't think that what I do is necessarily the best for. We have an engineering manager position and these disqualifications. Like you can throw that lure out there on LinkedIn and it might work, but I'm not sure that's what this is designed for. No. And actually, when you look at we're, we're, everyone's living in a talent short market right now, it doesn't matter what line of business or discipline you're in. And some of the best thinking on 
being able to hire good talent is you've got to build your bench and that's the bench that exists outside of the organization. So if you're a leader who only posts jobs and interviews when you have a need, you're always playing catch up. Whereas if you're a leader that's putting good content out there, connecting with an audience, not only are those individuals people that might pick up the call when they see an opportunity with you, but they might refer someone because they might be like, Hey, I like this guy, Matthew. He's always talking about stuff that means something to me. I don't have a need to change my job. I'm happy where I am, but seeing you were complaining to me the other day, you should go and talk to him. Yeah. It's that, it's that network power effect. And it, it'll be interesting to see as time goes on, because it, I feel like a couple of years when I first started pushing for this, people were really reluctant. Now people are much more interested and see the value in it. And it'll be interesting to see as time goes on, how many leaders leverage the platform and who doesn't and what that does for results. And because some of the best leaders I work for, their philosophy, especially when I've gotten to where I'm reporting to the C-suite, it's yeah. always, if there's someone that's that talented, I'll find a role for them and then figure out where it fits. Hey, I'll figure something out. Yeah. I've worked with other leaders where it's the opposite. They're, they don't want to hire the best people and it's, oh, they're not the right fit for this. They don't have the same experience as this person has a ton of experience doing this. And it's like, wait, they've led like, a, they led a large P&L and you don't think that they can take on this opportunity? It's like, no. Different experience, like, all right, got it. <laughs> people get stuck on that, whether it's degrees or past type of project. I've placed some people over the years in some weird roles. They're doing geotechnical work in the highlands of Papua New Guinea for an airstrip, right? There aren't many pl people that have built airstrips to land these, you know, huge Antonov aircraft full of equipment in like rainforests. Yeah. So when you go and look for that talent, you've got to look far afield and, and consider what skills may transfer. And, and then you find someone who's built maybe not that great of aircraft type of runway, but they've built in challenging environments and you say, yeah, let's bring them in and we'll put people around them that know the other technical elements. That's a real, that's probably more art than science because you can't codify the experiences needed on a team and how people are going to work together. But if you can just find that energy, that grit. I think you can achieve a lot in teams. And actually, I think you can accelerate the learning and performance of those teams too. I couldn't agree more. The, the thing I never understood is all, there's all these metrics for leaders. And the one metric that no one ever talks about is how much better do you make your teammates? So if you're a fantastic leader, you should make your team better. It shouldn't be how you necessarily individually perform in these meetings or whatever. What, the, the tell that you can spin, it's what is your, how does your team perform? Would they perform better without you or with yeah. you? And if the answer yeah. is they would perform just as well without you or better, then why is that person in charge of people? They're a good individual contributor, but you see that time and time again. Yeah. I actually hired a guy, I'll just call him Justin for now, out of the Middle East. He'd been building big projects for Saudi Aramco, working for Floor and Aussie guy, been away for a long time. And I sent him into Papua New Guinea on the client's team for ExxonMobil back in the day to run quality, safety and quality it was at mm -hmm. the time. And he just had this reputation. In fact, he was the safety manager, but he had amazing inroads into the quality team. So all of a sudden, like 17 different people turn up on this project and they've all followed him across from this Saudi Ramco job in with floor. And then you saw where he landed and it wasn't just, I just bring my team and we do this. He started influencing and having an impact on some of the local teams that were deployed, some of the contractor teams that were deployed, some of the internal staff. And within not a very long period of time, 
I think the Exxon Mobil team were like, hey, we got to hire this guy. We can't let him just be part of Dane's team. We've got to hire him and <laughs> build him into something else. And he's gone on to great success. But to your point, Matthew, if you measure Justin, it's like, how much better do you make your team? And he's way off the charts there. Yeah. And I love how you approach like the, you said it's more art than science. It is so much, especially on these project teams where it's a lot of these things are seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, months and months at a time. People are away from their families, high stress. Like there's a lot of things that if you got someone that doesn't know how to get along and someone that doesn't know how to turn the other cheek and you can end up in some bad situations just because of personalities and I'll never forget this. I'm almost embarrassed to say the story, but people that know me would probably think like it isn't true. I'm a positive person 99% of the time. I got assigned yeah. to a project once and I was not happy that I was there. It was the middle of nowhere, Oregon. I was supposed to be on the coast of California. The customer actually was like paying for me to be on this thing. So it was my company was making money. I get drug up to the middle of like Eastern Oregon, not Western yeah. Oregon either, Eastern yeah. Oregon. And I got drug up there because a project manager that I really respected and liked, he's no, I need Matthew on this project. And so I had to go there. I did the project and I was just miserable the whole time. And yeah. normally I'm like doing extra, Hey, what can I do with this? And instead we had this piping superintendent and I was like, why isn't your work done yet? We're supposed to be out here by this time. Are you kidding me? I was <laughs> on him all day. And at the end of the project, I remember talking to the project manager and I said, man, this was, man, this is a tough project. And he said, yeah, it was a tough project. He said, do you know why I think it was a tough project? And I said, no, why? He said, cause of your shitty attitude. I was like, yeah. what? He goes, listen, you, whether you like it or don't like it, or whether you realize it or not, your attitude carries a lot of weight in all these environments. So that's why I like you so much. When you bring the energy, everybody feeds off it. He said, but this project, everyone fed off your energy too, but it wasn't positive energy. Yeah. And it was like, I was, I think I was 25 at the time. And that was like one of those, oh, my life's never the same after hearing this. And I understand how energy affects their people, but that's like how sensitive some of the culture is on these projects. And so for you to be able to address that and bring in people that attract more talent, it's just huge. And people that are listening to this probably understand, but if you haven't actually done the field stuff and been in the projects, it's tough, huh? <laughs> it's tough. It's tough and it's real. And actually what you just touched on there about the energy that you brought in at 25, like people right now are not selling the transferable skills and the experience to incoming talent in this industry. Everyone's, oh, we're a big company. You get great benefits. You'll work on exciting projects. But if you get down to the human level, what 25-year-old gets to get thrown into a remote project and be dealing with some big characters, right? And some people that might be twice their age. And it's a hell of a learning environment, right? So you get these storytelling skills. You get these conflict resolution skills, you've just got, you've got real like cuts, bruises, and scars, which you're not going to learn in a classroom. And whether you decide to go into marketing or coding, or you want to go and retrain as a nurse, it doesn't matter what you want to do later, having skills out in the field, doing engineering and construction, they're life skills. I don't think, I, I just don't think we're providing enough of that opportunity to, to our youth in general right now. No. And, and being on projects, it's like a crash course in business because everything's condensed. I learned so much, not only about, about business, but about life because you show up in a place and it's like, you're going to be there for six months and you think six months is going to last forever. And all of a sudden the blink of an eye, it's over. And you look back and it's like about the relationships and the people and it's 
hard as it was, it was good. And so you just learn all these different things. And you also quickly learn, like, when you say, I'm going to go do that, you're not going to go do that. You either go do it or you're not going to go do it because you're going to be out of that yeah. area before you know it. And you just yeah. learn so much in those, in, in those situations, in these environments where you have to go from start to end in six months, you learn a lot. And that six months is relentless. And it's like coming, yeah. it's coming, it's coming every day. And half the time you're behind. And then finally yeah. end up making it. It's, yes, we did it. But you learn a ton about life and business. And I, I think about some of the reasons that I got out of the field. And I think if I was provided different opportunities, I would have never left the field because I love being in the field. The reason why I yeah. left the field was because I didn't want to travel. I had a place in California and was in California for six months and five years. So wait a yeah. second. This place is expensive and these taxes suck. I want to be here. Yeah. I want to be here. I don't want to be in Arizona. I don't want to be in New Mexico. I don't want to be in all these places. I want to be here. And so yeah. I said, I'm going to stop traveling. And if there would have been opportunities provided to stay local and not have to go to whatever the biggest opportunity was, I wouldn't have got left the field. So I like to hear what you're saying about where you're providing these different opportunities, because I think half the reason people get out of construction is because of the logistical issues. It's yeah. hard to raise a family in this. And so if you can provide more opportunities and you're more cognizant of people's life, I think more people would want to stay and not use this as a leverage point to get somewhere else because it's a, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It's interesting. I had this conversation with my parents that back in the day when they were building mines, the whole family would come and there would be a community and you'd do cricket, you'd do whatever you're doing and you'd be part of a township. And then more recently, partly because of the talent challenges, partly because we're building in more remote areas back in Australia, we moved to these man camps and put people on rotating rosters. And so you'd lose that sense of community around the project. So in the U.S., given that, there, yeah, there are some remote projects, but quite often we're building projects in and around existing townships, populations. I think there's a huge opportunity to really look out and build your teams around sustaining project work, workloads that, that it might not keep you in one town for a long time, but at least allow you to move from town to town and plug into community. So I think in the next five, 10 years, we're going to have to see a little bit more, and I know some companies already do it, but a little bit more engagement with communities, particularly for construction projects. Yeah. And it's, it's necessary. It's about time. It's like I said, that older boss I had, he was anti that. Right. And he was, yeah. he's, I, he was a great mentor for me, but he just had some thoughts that were like different. Like he was very much stuff that happens in this region stays in this region. And he's like, I yeah, want guys that don't want to leave. They don't want the next thing. And so there's a reason yeah. why they don't have ambition. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and or I, they're sweeping I, safety incidents under the carpet or some yeah. of the other bad behaviors. Yeah. So at this time I was in charge of safety out there and it was most project managers wanted someone with experience. But what I quickly realized is if you're decent with experience, you're not in this position because yeah. the people that I was able to get that were talented were right out of school or close to retirement didn't have kids that were in school. And so yep. the middle didn't look so great when you looked at performance. It's, wait a second, these, I see a pattern here. We can work into the pattern. We can fight against it. And he finally said, it's your team. Do whatever you want. I'm going to judge you by the results at the end. And my thing was, I'm not hiring anyone in the middle. Like very few yep. people are going to be in the middle. I'm looking for young, talented people out of school that are yep. willing to, hey, commit to two years for me. I'll write you your recommendation. Give me two years. That way I can bring someone else behind you and I'd have a team of people that are coming behind there. Then I have close to retirement people that had the knowledge but didn't have the ability to get out on the field as much, pair them together and it was great. It worked for a long time, but it took a little bit to get there because it was 
no, wait a second. These kids, they're going to leave. What do you mean that he's leaving? It's like, he's, he's got a job with a utility five minutes from where he grew up. Like yeah, he's, you gotta five, let he's it happen. 10 states away right now. What do you mean? Why yeah. is he leaving? It's you. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants to be a safety professional. He doesn't want to be CEO. That's why he's leaving. Cause he's got a better opportunity at home. <laughs> yeah. And I think companies and employers need to recognize that too. Cause that's real. And those individuals, if you think taking a long horizon view might end up turning, be a, turn up to be a customer in the future. Cause they've gone to work for a utility and utilities bringing back the engineering construction team. So I think if you play the long game, you play the ecosystem, it's important. Gone are the days when you can have the old school construction manager say, I want my guys to be here working in the camp so that they're not distracted by their wife, their kids, their parents, their buddies down at the pub. I want them when they're here working, when they go home, I don't care what they do. You can't really do that anymore. And we've seen, particularly in remote camp environments, we've seen a huge spike in mental health issues and other factors that really impact safety and quality on the job because we're forcing some of these people to live detached from the communities they really belong to. So I think there's a lot of work for us to do in some of those older school remote work environments. Yeah. I had the benefit, air quotes, to be up in the oil sands in Canada. That's uh-huh. the most remote I've been. It was that was an experience. Yeah. That was <laughs> that was an experience. Cause I'd been to Wyoming and it's like that that feels remote, but it's like I just drove an hour from Salt Lake. This is not that. <laughs> this is way, way out there. I've done a few drives up that way. <laughs> So it, interesting. So this was a fantastic conversation. I want, we'll start to wrap up here. I do yeah. want to record another episode and talk about marketing. And I, I'm super fascinated to talk some about just the more of the workers health standpoint, the mental health challenges that people deal with on projects and how some of the things that you're working on can help solve that. Cause yeah. people, you know, people put out the stuff when it's mental health awareness and people talk about how high the rate is of suicide and construction, but then we don't lead necessarily like that. They don't, you don't do things to alleviate that. You just say things to hope people listen to it and change, but it's, they have the ability yeah. to do that. They probably wouldn't be in that situation to begin with. Correct. So I want to wrap up with two things here. First is what is the biggest mistake companies make today with creating this flexible environment to re- retain the best project leadership and how they can, how can they correct it? And then after that, and I'll ask it again, but just so you can think about it, I want to know what has you optimistic today and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Flexible environments are hard because you've got to create a lot of systems for them. So I think the biggest mistake people make is they go from experimenting with a flexible system, which is fine. You've got to see what works to leaving a very like open ad hoc. Let's determine what we create for each manager. I think at some point in time, the companies that go through their experimentation if they don't lock down, this is what it is, and here are the standards, and here's how everyone else should interact with those flexible schedules, you're going to create lots of animosity and lots of workflow dropout leakage, which is impossible, really. That's, teams don't perform well, particularly, as you said, when they're on a six-month clock and they've got stuff to do. So I think really it is about explore, but then get very intentional about how it works and stay true to that intentional plan. Is there more than just a scheduling aspect of it? Because what I'm thinking is a lot of it's logistics when you think about getting people to areas that are close to them. But then there's also a lot of just understanding you have to do about the individual and their preferences. And so are you able to overlay that yet? Or is that some of what the software does helps or? Oh, yeah. Not yet. No, I haven't seen it. I hear all the problems, but I haven't seen a solution to it yet because you will have 
one person who works flexibly and because they're not on site, they'll do some of their paperwork at night, but that means that the rest of the team has to wait till the next morning and they're not getting it at the end of the day before their shift's over. And so it creates some bottlenecks. So I think how you work is as important, if not more important than where you work when you're trying to go flexible. And I haven't seen a silver bullet solution, if I'm honest. Particularly on projects, right? Because there's those dynamics where things are happening when you're not there. And I, I think if I think about the same thing with flexible work in offices, where if you try and treat flexible work the same way that you treat it in office work, it's not going to work because there were people that didn't work hard when everyone was in the offices. Those people are going to do even less. And then you're asking other people to do more. And the metrics that you use to judge performance is extremely arbitrary. And you're not setting out these, hey, what can you get this done? And I experienced this when I when I worked remote, I worked flexible a long time ago and people that were in the office for longer were, hey, look at how hard they're working. I'm like, they're not getting half of the stuff that I get done and they're in here more time. I think they're dumber than I am. What are you talking about? Yeah. That of yeah. course was an arrogant, ignorant thing to say. But it's but real. This, but it, there's at least an element of it, right? Yeah. I am producing this stuff. Whenever I get it done, you're not mad about my performance. You're worried about my time in the office. Why? Yeah. Is there a performance issue? No, but until... And I think from a company standpoint, until you get to that level where you can judge performance based off output and not time in the seat, I think that's where a big shift will happen because you'll be able to start to hold people accountable better. And honestly, I've seen well-intentioned people not understand the expectation. And so if they don't know the expectation is, how can they meet that expectation? Because theirs is different than yours. Agree. No, I agree with that. And I think there are some little tips and tricks like, yeah, we'll run a toolbox meeting to start the day, but are we running a similar type of meeting? to end the day where we can just make sure everyone signs off on, did they get what they needed today? And maybe you do that an hour or two before the close of that shift, because that way, if someone needs to scramble or get a hold of someone who, who is flexible remote, you can do it and you're not holding everyone else up, but it'd be interesting to see what other listeners have come up with on their journeys through this (laughs) human experiment. (laughs) Yeah. It's been interesting because I, I'm fortunate to work with a couple of big companies and they've taken different tacts. One is trying to figure it out and embracing it. Another one was like, you're going to be on the project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know what the answer is. I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I know I have my opinion, but it's not grounded probably in as much information as they're seeing. So it'll be interesting to see how that go, how that all plays out as time goes on. Yeah. The uh, reality to- is the latter version of being on the project is the easiest to execute, but it, you might not have the best talent to execute with. So it's, that's the trade-off. Yeah. But it's, what is that? It's hard to quantify a negative, right? They, right. Yeah. And safety, right? Like you, they don't measure the incidents that you don't have. So you, <laughs> yep. uh, Dane, this has been awesome. I do want to record another episode and talk more about fun. marketing and ways that individuals can play a role in attracting talent. And you have a podcast, so I know that you obviously see the value in content and utilizing yeah. something like LinkedIn and podcast to, to attract your own customers. would like to have you back on and have that conversation. But why don't you end this with what has you optimistic today, whether it's in the industry or outside the industry? I think what's super optimistic today is that technology is a tool. I think it augments the way that we work. And I think it's becoming more and more central for all of us, no matter what job we're in, what company we work in, that the human connection and the human relationship is actually a greater driver of value than we've perhaps given it credit for in the future. So. I'm excited for smaller teams being more fluid in how they come together and select the work that they do and deploy in a way that's healthy 
for the performance of the team, for the performance of the community, for the individual. So that's what I'm optimistic about. I think we've got a lot of good stuff ahead. I like that one. Platitudes. They didn't start out as platitudes. They started out as just a saying. And what is it? It's all about the people, right? And the, yeah. I think that it's all about the relationships. It's all about the people. You can say a million different ones, but there's a reason they're out there. So yeah, thank you, Dane. It. Thanks, Matthew. This has been fun. Absolutely. Absolutely.